At around 7 a.m. on November 12, 2012, a housekeeper entered the home of 52-year-old Greg Fall on Ambergris Key, an island off the coast of Belize. When she pushed the door open that morning, she saw something horrific. Greg was dead, lying face up on the bed in a pool of blood. The investigation would reveal that he had been shot once in the back of the head, close range, execution style. He also had multiple red marks all over his body and a piece of fingernail embedded in his scalp. His iPhone and laptop were missing, but there was no sign of forced entry. A single 9mm shell casing was found nearby. There was blood smeared on the floor and red marks on his back and side. Investigators would later determine that the marks were taser burns. Greg was a former restaurant owner and builder who had worked on projects at SeaWorld and Universal Studios. He had lived in Central Florida, but after a divorce, he was ready for a new start in the tropical paradise of Belize. According to his family, Greg was friendly and outgoing and entrepreneurial. He was a builder who had a passion for setting up new businesses and for fishing. But his dreams for a chilled-out beach existence were shattered when he met his neighbor, John McAfee. 67-year-old John lived in a compound 600 feet away from Greg's house. They shared a dirt path that led down to the beach. John was a genius, a cybersecurity expert who had cornered the market on antivirus software back in the 90s. At one point, he'd had a net worth of over $100 million. At first, a lot of people on the island thought of 67-year-old John as just a local, eccentric rich guy who loved to throw parties with one of his many teenage girlfriends on his arm. But after John moved to Belize, things took a dark turn in his life. Soon he surrounded himself with guns and armed guards, and he seemed to transform into a kind of crazy cross between Hugh Hefner and Colonel Kurtz in Heart of Darkness. How did John go from being a nerdy tech guy to accusations of multi-million dollar fraud and masterminding tortures, murder, and rape? I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Now, I'm old enough to remember a time before you could Google anything on your phone. And back in the day, John McAfee's name was synonymous with antivirus software. To this day, every single time I see one of those annoying pop-up ads, I think of him. But it turns out that there is a lot more to John McAfee's story. John was born in Gloucestershire, England, on September 18, 1945, to an English mother and an American father. He has dual citizenship, and he's always described himself as an Anglophile. Now, because John has openly stated multiple times that he loves messing with journalists and has often written off crazy behavior as a hoax or a prank, it's sometimes hard to know which parts of his story to believe. But he said that his dad was abusive and committed suicide when he was a teenager. 
And then John and his mother went to live in Virginia. He started drinking heavily and using drugs. John went to Roanoke College. And after he graduated, one of his first jobs was selling magazines door to door. And this might have been the first place he learned that sometimes the story you're selling is more important than the product. John went to Roanoke College, and after he graduated, he was working on a PhD in mathematics. But he left after he got caught dating a student. He married that student, and eventually, they made their way to Silicon Valley in the 80s. He worked for several companies in the field of computer science. At one point, he worked for Lockheed Martin. Then in 1986, the first big computer virus hit, the Doomsday Virus. Then, a couple of Pakistani brothers, the Alvi brothers, made history by inventing something called the brain virus. These guys were on the cover of Time magazine, and this was the biggest story in the world. This was the first time that the idea of computer viruses, machines being infected and spreading to other machines, spread into the national consciousness. And it was also one that could be manipulated to terrify people. And McAfee was very good at manipulating a story. He created a program to beat the virus, and it worked. Then he did something surprising. Instead of selling it, he gave it away for free. This was a brilliant move because later, this would give him a massive customer base. Even in the early days, people who worked with McAfee said that they behaved kind of like a cult, sleeping at the office, sometimes having sex there, He was also doing a lot of cocaine at this point, and sometimes selling it to his employees. He would drink scotch and pop pills at work. According to Wired, it wasn't unusual for him to go to work while tripping on acid in those days. But in the culture of Silicon Valley in the 80s, this didn't seem all that strange. Once, he took a whole bag of the psychedelic drug DMT and ended up hiding behind a garbage can and hearing voices. Eventually, in 1984, he was let go from his job and his wife left him. So he ended up in rehab. And after going to Alcoholics Anonymous, he would tell anyone who asked from that point on that he had been completely sober since 1984. This would be called into question later. In 1992, another virus hit called Michelangelo. In the end, only a few thousand computers were infected but McAfee warned that this virus could wipe out millions. So everyone wanted protection. And McAfee's antivirus program sold like crazy. His claims were later found to be kind of a scam on a massive scale. But he did make tens of millions of dollars in a matter of months. Afterwards, he was criticized for spreading misinformation and he resigned from his company in 1994. John reportedly cashed out selling his shares in the company for $100 million. After that, he seemed to try to reinvent himself in the wellness area. In 2000, he bought 280 acres of land in the Colorado mountains and started a studio devoted to yoga and meditation. Now, whether he did it for good karma or wanted a lot of fit young women hanging around him was debatable. But for a while, he seemed happy. He got married for the second time to a woman named Judy. And there's very little information out there about his second wife, or his first wife for that matter. But he divorced his second wife in 2002. Now during this time, John wrote five books on what he called 
relational yoga, and other aspects of Eastern philosophy. Though he seemed totally immersed in this lifestyle at the time, he would later describe them as trash. Eventually, he closed down the retreats and moved to New Mexico with his 22-year-old girlfriend, Jen. After he got out of his yoga guru phase, he bought property in New Mexico and founded the Southwest Aerotrekking Academy. He claimed that he invented the sport of aerotrekking, which was basically teaching people to fly ultralight motorized aircraft. These planes were fast and, because they were so light, dangerous. And again, according to the New York Times, John seemed to come up with a story that made him sound like the victim when something went wrong. He said that there were groups of enemies conspiring against him, everyone from lesbian bikers to disgruntled paintballers. In reality, he was in hot water due to pending lawsuits and the death of a 61-year-old student. During this time, after he closed the schools and the retreat, John claimed that his net worth had gone from over $100 million to below $4 million. Later, a lot of people said that the public auctions of homes and luxury cars were just a way to make the public believe that John was broke, when in reality, he planned to take the money and run. Journalist Jeff Wise, who spent a lot of time hanging out with John and reporting on him over the years, said that he began to investigate the possibility that John may have had other motives. Jeff first interviewed John for a story in 2007 in Psychology Today. At the time, John was living in New Mexico with Jen. Like many other journalists, Jeff Wise first seemed to find John charming. Later, he said he saw his dark side and wrote in Gizmodo how in his view John went, quote, from Peter Pan to final real Scarface, end quote. In 2007, Jeff wrote, quote, he's not only hugely charismatic, he also embodies many of the qualities that I aspire to. He is funny, adventure-seeking, physically courageous, intelligent, and media savvy. He wants to experience everything intensely and to understand everything. He knows how to tell a story and he's got plenty to tell, end quote. But later, Jeff began to investigate rumors that John's exit to Belize was actually motivated by pending lawsuits, including a wrongful death lawsuit. The lawsuit was filed by the family of a 61-year-old man who died while taking a lesson at John's aerotrekking flight school. The family sued John for $5 million in damages. They claimed that John had put his young nephew, who they say did not have a full pilot's license, in charge of the school. John's nephew also died in the crash. He was 22. And John did tell people that judgments in the U.S. were not enforceable in Belize. Whatever his motivations, John made the move to the island in 2008. Eventually, he built his compound in Ambergris Key. But John also built a lab in the jungle in a place called Orange Walk. And the story got a lot crazier. According to news reports, once again, John claimed to have a noble cause. He said that he wanted to help develop medicines grown from local herbs that would heal the world and boost the local economy. He hired a young, Harvard-educated microbiologist named Allison Adonizo. At first, she said she was thrilled to be getting what she believed was a dream job and given funding and a lab. Journalist Nanette Bernstein spent several years investigating John 
for her Showtime documentary, Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. She interviewed Allison, and it was harrowing. John founded a company called Quorum X with Allison as chief scientist. Allison said that they were supposed to be working on anti-quorum sensing, which interrupts bacteria's ability to communicate and spread. Gizmodo said this could be the herbal equivalent of Neosporin. But over time, Allison said she started to realize that John was shady. He went from talking about making antibiotics using local herbs to claiming that they were working on aphrodisiacs, basically a female equivalent of Viagra. She claimed that John even got her to fake stuff for the media. Sometimes he even asked her to put colored dye into some test tubes and make it look real. Allison finally had enough. But she said that when she told John she was leaving the lab, John gave her a glass of orange juice that tasted strange. The next thing she knew, she said she was slipping in and out of consciousness. She remembers him hovering over her, naked, and said that when she woke up, she was bleeding. Allison said she could tell that she had been raped. She said, quote, he went from zero to crazy in like two seconds. He called me all kinds of names and pushed me through the door of his orange walk compound. I locked myself in the lab and thought, he's dangerous, end quote. Allison said that she left Belize immediately after the alleged attack. When she got back to the US, she said she reported it to the FBI but she was told that they had no jurisdiction in the country. She said she was telling her story because she wants people to understand what John is really like. She said she considers herself lucky to have made it out of the situation alive. John absolutely denied Allison's rape allegations. He said that he fired Allison for incompetence and that after that, she went crazy, trashed the lab, and deleted their research from the computers. He wrote on a blog, quote, Allison, at best, was marginally unattractive. It has been widely reported in the press that I had a harem of young, beautiful women, which I have never denied and fully own up to. If I were ever inclined to rape a woman, which I never have even remotely considered doing, it would certainly not be Allison for whom I would risk my freedom, end quote. He also posted a picture of one of his teenage girlfriends at the time next to Allison and wrote, would anyone rape the woman on the right when the woman on the left would willingly do the deed? After setting up his compound, Jean began to surround himself with a group of violent criminals, people who had connections to gangs, people who he believed that, for a price, would defend him to the death. Now, some of this paranoia may have been justified. In Belize, there are people who target wealthy foreigners, and it's not uncommon for people to pay local watchers or armed guards to patrol their property. Any environment that has palatial homes surrounded by a lot of people in poverty can create an unstable environment for people living inside the walls. Inequality does create uncertainty. But despite his claims of long-term sobriety and the fact that he reportedly did not allow any of his girlfriends to drink, John may have had other reasons for his growing paranoia. Authorities in Belize were taking a look at him, at his compound, his lab, and the fact that he was surrounding himself with an armed militia. 
and they started to suspect that he might be manufacturing methamphetamine. Then at one point, John reportedly started posting anonymously on a Russian website. He was using a pseudonym and very enthusiastically detailing his experimentation with MDPV, also known as bath salts. I'm a huge fan of MDPV, he wrote in one post. I think it's the finest drug ever conceived, not just for the indescribable hypersexuality, but also for the smooth euphoria and mild come down. He wrote that he was trying to create a new drug and he wrote about his methodology. The post got more and more outrageous. He wrote, for example, that he would not give doses of his new drug to friends because they would masturbate until they bled or try to have sex with his dogs. Later, when he was called out on this, he would say, as he often did when he was trying to get out of something, that this was all just an elaborate hoax. Nanette tried to interview John for her documentary. John refused, but according to her, he continued to email her throughout the entire process. And he openly told her that he loved to f*** with journalists. For example, at one point, she asked John about the rumors that he had lost all his money. She wrote that she was asking this because she wanted to follow the money. His reply read, quote, I've had over 100 trusts with my name appearing nowhere. I've had bearer bonds and 14 corporations. How on earth are you going to follow the money? End quote. Much like the serial killers who communicate with the press, even though they have to know that this could be a nail in their coffin later, John couldn't seem to help showing off. And his personal life also seemed to be spinning more and more out of control. Over the years, he morphed from a nerdy Silicon Valley guy to kind of a caricature of himself. Multiple tattoos, bleached blonde hair, and several teenage girlfriends who lived in what he described as a harem. They would later tell reporters that John was kind to them and that he paid them well. A lot of these young women came from broken homes where they had been molested or worse. Some were single mothers. All were open about the transactional nature of their relationships. One girlfriend, who's described as a teenage former sex worker, told the BBC, quote, he's sweet, generous. He likes to like adventures. He's serious, and usually he has a dark sense of humor. He's generally a sweet guy. He just doesn't like to be with, end quote. He met one girlfriend, Amy, when she was just 16. And this ended his 12-year relationship with Jen, who had come with him to Belize. For the next several years, he kept acquiring other women. He lavished expensive gifts on his girlfriends, but also, by his own admission, he emotionally manipulated them. The Daily Mail did an expose of the seven women that John had living with him in 2013. He wrote about them on a blog he created on the website whoismcafee.com. He called them the girls and said that they all lived in a social engineering project. He said he met the women through his friend Paz, who basically acted as a scout at a nearby bar called the Lover's Bar. Paz would set him up with the young women, and then John said he would make a decision about whether or not to hire them. He wrote, quote, I encouraged all the girls to hang out together and become friends where possible. It was easier to keep tabs on someone's actions if others were watching, or if a shared camaraderie encouraged the sharing of intimate secrets. All the girls told me the other girls' secrets, end quote. Some of the relationships seemed extremely volatile. 
Amy even admitted that she pulled out a gun and shot at John's head at one point and thought of killing him. But she said that she missed and they made up afterwards. John also had some bizarre sexual fetishes, including what they called scat sex, which involved cutting a hole in a hammock and having women sit in it so they could basically poop in his mouth. On April 30th, 2012, over 40 armed soldiers from the gang suppression unit of the Belize Police Department stormed John's compound in Orange Walk. This was a raid. They had search warrants and they came in looking for drugs. They found some gray rocks, but when they tested them, they didn't find any illegal drugs. They did find guns. Now this is a bit of a mystery because it's been reported the police did not find cocaine or meth, which they thought might be there. But at the time, bath salt chemical compounds were not illegal in Belize. So many people have speculated that that could have been what John was working with. New York Magazine suggested that John could have been using alpha PHP, which according to the article is similar in structure and function to the active ingredient in cot or flaca. In the end, the government of Belize only charged John with one count of having a firearm without a license. He was released, but after the raid, John got even more paranoid. He left Orange Walk and went back to his home at Ambergris Key. And that's when he started butting heads with Greg Fall. Greg had dreamed of a quiet life of semi-retirement. So when he encountered John with his armed militia and loud sex and partying, and pack of aggressive dogs, he was not happy. He believed that John was terrorizing the neighborhood and he made his views known. He filed a complaint. It read, quote, the residents and visitors of the Mata Grande subdivision and surrounding properties petition local authorities to address three issues affecting our safety, health, and tourism. These problems are all at the residence of John McAfee, end quote. According to ABC News, the petition also stated that John's guards walk around with shotguns at night, up and down the beach. They have been known to shine spotlights right into people's eyes at night and act aggressively with their guns. Chambering a bullet and nonsense such as this, people are scared to walk down the beach at night as a result. The tourists are terrified. According to reports, John had between eight and 12 pit bull mixes. They ran in a pack and had reportedly bitten several residents and three tourists. Now, whether Greg actually poisoned John's dogs is still a mystery. According to the documentary, John believed that Greg was the person who had given tortilla laced with poison to his dogs. Several people said that Greg did threaten to poison John's dogs and that they believed that he followed through on those alleged threats. But Greg's dad and other people pointed out that there were a lot of people who complained about the dogs. On November 8th or 9th, just a few days after Greg filed his complaint, one of John's girlfriends says the dogs were foaming at the mouth. She said that John started crying, became hysterical, and was ranting and raving. He took a shotgun and put four of the dogs down. The next day, he had some construction workers bury them. On November 11th, according to police, Greg Fall was out drinking at a barbecue with a friend. At around 11 p.m., he headed home. And at some point, he went upstairs to bed. To get home, he would have had to pass right by John McAfee's house. That night, he also left a friend a voicemail 
saying that he thought there could be someone in his yard. But he said it was nothing to worry about, according to court documents. The next day, he was found dead. But Nanette talked to a lot of locals during the filming of her documentary. And she found out that John had allegedly made examples of people before, including a local man named David Middleton. According to sources Nanette spoke to, David broke into John's home and stole some stuff. When John found out about it, he paid some people to beat David up. He gave the crew $3,000. The men brutally beat David and cut him with a steak knife. They took him to the hospital later, but David slipped into a coma, and several days later, he died. Like Greg, David had been tased multiple times all over his body, including on his genitals. The sources alleged that John wasn't worried about the police at the time because, they said, he had already bought them off. Now, John did make massive donations to the local police department. He gave them money and weapons and facilities. He said that he did this to reduce crime on the island, but a lot of people wondered if, once again, he had ulterior motives. And a lot of people believe that John's behavior after Greg's death made him look even more suspicious. Police said that they wanted to talk to John, but when they came to look for him, he was nowhere to be found. This was because, as he later told a Wired reporter, he buried himself in sand and put a cardboard box over his head so that he could hide from the police. Later, he left the country. And after his great escape, John started blogging and tweeting about what he called the injustices in the case. Greg was the victim, but once again, John made it all about him. He emailed Wired reporter Josh Davis to tell him the story of what he says went down on the night of Greg's murder. He told Josh that he had seen frogmen dressed in diving suits approaching his home and hanging around in recent months. He said that on the night Greg was murdered, he saw the police, who he described as a contingent of black-suited thugs. He said that they were dropped off at the dock near his home. He said that police began flooding the beach, and shortly after that, all of his dogs were poisoned. He said that four of the dogs had already died. He insisted that the government had killed Greg, and he said that he was their actual target. He told a New York Times reporter, quote, the only person I know who didn't do it is Greg Fall, because he loved dogs, and people who love dogs don't kill other people's dogs, end quote. Now, this is an extremely odd statement to make. Greg's family was doing their own investigating. And according to a lawsuit, they alleged that in the early hours of November 11th, a female associate of John's, presumably one of his girlfriends, went to Greg's house and distracted him while a hitman was able to subdue, torture, and murder him. They named the hitman as Eddie McCoy, who was better known locally as Mac-10, after the type of gun that he liked to use. After that, the international murder mystery made headlines around the world, and the disgraced tech tycoon was on the run. Now, on the surface, this does not seem like a textbook case of red-collar criminality. After all, John had not stolen anything from Greg, and he wasn't worried about a fraud investigation. But Frank Perry, the red-collar expert, has argued that red-collar criminals perceive the fraud detection as an existential threat, a blow to their self-concept. They constantly play the victim. So when they resort to violence, they see it as preservation. They see it as self-defense. 
That's because, he says, quote, red-collar criminals do not reject violence as a solution to a perceived problem. So killing is just as viable a solution as using deceptive and manipulative characteristics to satisfy their needs, end quote. So in this way, John McAfee is a classic red-collar criminal. He had built a carefully constructed image of himself, and when anyone threatened that image, or he felt turned on him in any way, he had no hesitation about turning on them viciously. Remember, he didn't attack Allison until she told him that she knew that the drug development was He turned on the journalist Jeff Wise, who he'd seemed to consider a friend, when Jeff dared to criticize him. Once, when Jeff was interviewing him, John pulled out a gun and started playing Russian roulette, sticking a gun to his head. He seemed to take pleasure in terrifying Jeff. But even though John was a wanted man, he couldn't resist, once again, reaching out to the media. He tried to make the whole thing sound like an adventure. He would invite journalists into his world and make them use code words to find him. And a lot of the press coverage around this time actually made him seem kind of cool. A cult anti-hero to people who hate government interference. Before he met with journalists, he would sometimes use ridiculous disguises, like putting baby powder in his hair and wearing really bad makeup. Some of the reporters said they knew immediately that this was John, but they decided to play along anyway to get the story. John was adamant. He said he was not going back to Belize to face questioning Greg's death due to what he believed was a vendetta by the government to assassinate him. They may be from totally different worlds, but at this point, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between John McAfee and the Tiger King. They both had the bleach blonde hair, the tribal tattoos, and the outrageous behavior. John even has tiger prints tattooed on his shoulders. It's easy as a journalist to get distracted by the story of these guys and their zany antics, but we have to dig deep to not be fooled by the mask and to focus on the evidence and follow the money. The murder conviction rate in Belize is shockingly low. We're talking single digits. There's no DNA lab in Belize, so the embedded fingernail on Greg's body couldn't be processed. More evidence started to surface, but none of it was conclusive. One of John's girlfriends gave him an alibi. She said he was with her on the night of the murder. But another former worker claimed that he had picked John up shortly after 3 a.m. on that night. He said he picked him up in a location near Greg's house and took him back home. Greg's parents alleged in their lawsuit that when John hired Eddie to kill Greg, he paid him $3,000. Eddie admitted that he worked for John as a bodyguard but he denied any involvement in Greg's murder. He later implied to Nanette that there may be more to the story, but said he planned to disappear before things got too dangerous for him. Murder convictions in Belize are almost impossible without eyewitnesses or a confession, and the police had neither. So John continued to travel around the world, flaunting the fact that cops couldn't find him. Then, in a twist stranger than fiction, Vice published an article called We Are With John McAfee Right Now, Suckers. Vice's story had a photo of John with the Vice editor-in-chief that had been taken with an iPhone 4S. And ironically, for someone who had been involved in computer security, the location information, which allowed authorities to track them in Guatemala, was still embedded in the photo. But they didn't mask their location. Now, police had his GPS coordinates 
they were able to match the picture to a hotel in Guatemala. John had illegally crossed the border. So Vice TV got another story. The cameras were rolling when the police showed up and John was arrested. John was detained in a Guatemalan jail, facing deportation, but he faked a heart attack so that he could buy time for his lawyer to put in an appeal. During this time, he announced his intention to marry for the third time to one of his girlfriends, a 20-year-old named Sam, whose uncle was acting as his attorney. Belize couldn't get him back, so John was deported back to the U.S. First, he landed in Florida. At some point, he split with Sam, and met a single mother and sex worker named Janice at a bar in Miami Beach. After paying her initially, he said that they started hanging out and developed a relationship. She traveled the world with him. And though she told the Sun newspaper that she had three teenage children back in the States, she said she had been on the run with John for most of their seven-year relationship. She also claimed that at the beginning of her relationship with John, she had been giving the cartel information about him But again, it's not clear if any of these things are true. We have to take everything about John McAfee and everyone he's associated with with a massive grain of salt. In 2013, John's former island home in Belize burned down. He told news outlets that the government had torched his house. He relocated to Portland, Oregon, and later to a small town in Tennessee. In 2015, he was arrested in Tennessee for driving under the influence. In a social media post, he admitted that he had been driving while on Xanax, but he blamed his doctor for not telling him that this combo could be dangerous. In 2016, Nanette's documentary was released on Showtime to rave reviews. She said that John continued to taunt her. At one point, after she went to Belize, he told her that he'd been recording her while she was there and even sent her video footage of herself talking to people. It's super creepy. John and Janice popped up again in the sun. This time, they did an interview from what they called their tinfoil-covered hideout, which they said was somewhere in Lithuania. They posed for photos holding machine guns on a yacht and claimed that they were taking these measures so that their cell phone service could not be tracked. Since they weren't making any progress in the criminal case, Greg's family began a civil suit against John. John refused to respond to the complaint and repeatedly failed to show up in court. So eventually, the court ruled against him in absentia. They ordered him to pay $25 million to Greg's estate, $5 million for emotional distress, $20 million in damages, and around $8,400 in funeral costs. John said in a statement that he never responded to the lawsuit because, quote, it was a suit based entirely on media reporting, end quote. Throughout 2020, John continued to announce his involvement in several projects, including a tech company and cryptocurrency. He sold his life story to a production company, and a movie called King of the Jungle is reportedly in the works, with Zac Efron set to play John. John's antivirus software company was acquired by Intel in 2010 for $7.68 billion. Over the years, the company has repeatedly had to deny any connection to John. To this day, he continues to talk to the press. On one podcast, he talked about his meth habit while smoking through a bong filled with tequila. 
Most of what he says is absolute madness. And yet, he's still described as a world-famous tech CEO, computer scientist, civil disobedience activist, privacy advocate, and pioneer of the commercial antivirus industry. In 2016, John ran for president and tried to secure nomination as a libertarian candidate. He came in second. Finally, the feds caught up with him. John was arrested in Spain in June 2020, and according to the indictment, is awaiting extradition. He was charged with tax evasion and willful failure to file tax returns. According to the indictment, this is connected with his income since he returned to the U.S. It alleges that between 2014 and 2018, John earned millions in income from promoting cryptocurrencies, consulting, speaking engagements, and selling the rights to his life story. Yet he admits that he never filed a tax return. The indictment also claims that John attempted to evade the IRS by concealing assets, including real property, a vehicle, and a yacht. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of around 30 years in prison. In addition, the SEC has also filed a complaint. They allege that John promoted initial coin offerings, or ICOs, connected to cryptocurrency. But when he endorsed these products, they say he failed to disclose the fact that he was paid a reported $23 million in cryptocurrency. John continues to tweet. He wrote on Twitter, quote, You want to know what prison is like? It's like a Motel 6 run by Hitler's SS. I am content in here. I have friends. The food is good. All is well. Know that if I hang myself, I'll let Epstein, it will be no fault of mine. Prison is an adventure to say the least. End quote. John continues to deny any involvement in Greg's murder and insists that Allison's accusations of rape are completely false. Greg Fall's family continues to hope for justice and to grieve him. They released a statement. It read in part, Gregory Fall was a loving and incredible father, son, husband, friend, and sibling, who over six years ago was violently and cruelly tortured and murdered at the direction of John McAfee. John McAfee's depraved acts of plotting, financing, and directing Greg's murder reflect that he has absolutely no respect for life or law, end quote. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? No! <laughs>